everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Alex Christie, the author of Gutenberg's Apprentice, a debut novel set in mid-15th century Mainz. For book lovers, and I assume we are all to some extent book lovers here, the invention of the printing press marks a turning point of extraordinary significance. Indeed, until the introduction of e-books in the last few years, we might consider Johann Gutenberg's invention to be the turning point in terms of popular literacy. It opened up a realm formerly limited to the rich and or educated few and unleashed a flood of books, both religious and secular, upon an unsuspecting world. Even with today's technological revolution, print books continue to dominate in terms of sales and with good reason. Printed books are beautiful and a pleasure to read. Research indicates that they draw the reader in and make themselves memorable in ways that electronic books so far cannot. Their invention was and remains a matter of historical importance. But like every invention, Gutenberg's press did not spring into being without years of trial and error, conflict and secrecy and strife. As Alex Christie's novel opens, Peter Schoeffer, her protagonist, is preparing to reminisce about the days before the appearance of the Great Bible that put Gutenberg's workshop on the technological map. Spanheim Abbey Germany, September 1485. Many years afterward, when Abbot Trithemius first asked him to recall the true beginnings of the glorious art of printing, Peter Schiffer refused. The story was too private, he informed the abbot, and not really his. Exactly so. No man invents alone. Creation is the Lord's own province. The monk, with a wide smile, was pitching toward his guest. It follows that the man who made this miracle was touched by God. He's young too young to be the abbot of this hilltop cloister, master of a vaulted study lined with books whose brass clasps shimmer in the golden autumn light. Nor does Peter Schiffer like the glint of satisfaction in his eyes. Although he knows why it is there, Trithemius has netted him at last, has drawn the celebrated printer up to his own abbey after many tries. I plan to write it all, the abbot says, and lifts an arm to circumscribe the library, the thick stone keep, the Rhineland down below, a chronicle of all that has transpired here in this blessed time. None of more import, surely, than this great invention in which you, sir, played a part. He uses me to make his reputation, Peter thinks. Is this how chronicles are made? The story told to those who'd make their name by those whom time and fate have unaccountably left standing? And now, please join me in welcoming Alex Christie. Hi, Alex. I'm really looking forward to talking with you today. Thank you for agreeing to an interview. Oh, thanks so much for asking me. I look forward to it. Uh, normally, I start by asking authors to talk about themselves, uh, their past, and how they came to write novels, especially the novel that we're featuring. I'd like to do that with you, too, um, and in two parts, because you're both a letterpress printer and a writer. Okay. You would like to know how I came to this book in the beginning. Well, it's a really um, somewhat convoluted story, but first of all, I always wanted to be a writer, even when I was a little girl. I actually wrote my first novel when I was 10, um, and I also published a family newspaper at the same age. So I always, always thought of myself as someone who wrote for a living, and I actually have been a journalist my whole career and have earned my living that way. So I had a secret dream to write a novel one day, but I really never actually imagined that I would write a historical novel. You know, I, what happened is I worked as a journalist for a number of years, and then when I had my children, I went back to graduate school and got an MFA in creative writing at St. Mary's College of California. And I wrote one novel in that program, which has never been published, which is 
you know, I think probably the right way for writers to develop, to work at their craft for a number of years, but always contemporary things. Um, and what happened was I had also in my teenage years learned to print because my grandfather is was uh, the foreman of the last hot type foundry in San Francisco it, called Mackenzie and Harris. And it ran as a going concern uh, commercially until the mid-70s. And then he retired and, and taught me how to do letterpress printing in his garage. And we printed many books together over the years. Um, and I just have always loved it. It's not my craft or my field, but it's a hobby. And I still have a letterpress, which lives in San Francisco and is used by real printers. I consider people who earn their living from the craft. And um, so what happened is I... One day in 2001, read the New York Times, and there was an article about some research that had been done into Gutenberg's earliest types. And it just caught my eye and was this little tiny seed, you know, that I tucked, into, I tucked it away because at the time I was writing a different novel. But it, it basically said, well, what did he actually um, invent? Did he actually invent the letterpress uh, as we know if, as it worked and was operated for 500 years, or was it a more rudimentary process? And I just thought, oh, that's really interesting, but I didn't take it any further. And then, as it happened, I moved to Germany, because uh, I'm married to a German, and I started looking into the story. And that's really when I discovered all of this material, because I did not know that much about the history of printing until that moment. Um, and once I did, you know, then I found out that there was this incredible story that no one had ever really told that wasn't just about this lone genius guy, Johannes Gutenberg, but actually this whole consortium of people who came to make this huge, enormous, expensive 1,282-page book. So it was a long, long process, and it took me almost seven years, really, to from start of the very first research to publication. Oh, listen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's my cat, Jahan. He likes to be part of the interviews. <laughs> wonderful to have an audience what can i say <laughs> and he's very appreciative Excellent. um so what made you you decided to, to write it as a novel in effect because you were already a novelist and you did you feel that a novel was a particularly good way to tell the story well it's a really complicated um question because there are many many non there's a mountain of research and non-fiction books and biographies about Gutenberg um, what I discovered when I started looking into it I did think of it initially as a novel only because I had been as you say writing novels and I and and at one point I, I was I've been asked repeatedly why didn't you write it as non-fiction and it's really very simple is that in the last Three four hundred years in Germany, there have been such extraordinary wars and destruction that the documentary record is incredibly fragmentary. You know, so for example, Johannes Gutenberg never signed a single book that he printed, and all of the research that's been done in half a millennium has been primarily deduction. You know, that he must have done this through various uh, comparative analyses, and and I had not known of the existence of this uh, the other two characters in the story. Um, like everybody else, you know, I grew up with this idea that Johann Gutenberg invented printing, and he was a genius, and he was a goldsmith, and he did this amazing thing by himself. But just even in the first, you know, six months of research, what happened is I went to the Strand in New York, my absolute favorite bookstore, and I, I stumbled over in the old, you know, in the printing history section, I stumbled over a book about Peter Schuffer, and I had never heard of him. 
and I think no, most people outside of a very small group of printing historians have ever heard of him. But he was the most important. He was the first major printer in the world. He invented publishing. He, he produced 300 books. He was this incredible guy. And I thought, wow. You know, here's just a, it's a tremendous opportunity to look at this story that we think we know in a different way, from a whole different perspective. And he was a generation younger than the other person in this production who was the partner, the venture capitalist, a man named Johann Fust. So, you know, you have these two older men and this younger man, and I, I hadn't known either how desperately sadly the story ended. And I don't want to give away, but, you know, uh, we do have the Gutenberg Bible. It was made. But it was a tremendously difficult undertaking, and it ended in tragedy. And I, I just thought, wow, this is one of the greatest untold stories, and so significant historically. Um, and I didn't, there was no way that you could tell it in, not, in nonfiction. There's just not enough data. You have to surmise. You have to imagine. And so, of course, the version that I tell is my version. It's what I have concluded after really exhaustive research and a very profound commitment to the facts as a journalist. I really tried not to invent very much. But I really tried to take the mosaic pieces of what is known and imagine the human story that would explain those things. You know, a certain number of things were produced and printed, a certain number of historical events occurred. How did it all unfold? How might it have unfolded? And, you know, it's one version. It's my version. I think it's a pretty, you know, defensible, plausible version of history, but we will never know. We will never know exactly how Gutenberg made his first types. But, you know, I'm, it's all about trying to get closer to imagining how it might have worked. That's very interesting. That's actually why I write historical fiction as well. Uh, I wasn't aware that uh, the situation in Germany was with the documents was um, as difficult as that because in in uh, medieval Russian history we have very few documents that have survived, and so uh, people spend a great deal of time arguing about which ones are authentic. You know, a lot of them have been misdated, and yeah. you know this is all very important if you're in the field, but the general public really couldn't care less, and exactly. in a sense shouldn't care less because yeah. you know they want the stories and so um, this is why I started writing novels because there's all this wonderful stuff that's going on and yet you can't really document it in the, exactly. in that sense to write a, you know, if you write a historical book, you exactly. spend a lot of time saying, well, it must have been this way because of this, this, this reason. So I thought, well, you know, if I put it in a novel, people actually want to read it. <laughs> well, it, it's a really interesting dilemma, though, because I have read recently, you know, some historians find it problematic in the sense that the general public will then believe that the story at as written in the novel is the factual way it was. And I think it is a difficult question, you know. Um, I think, you know, writers of historical fiction should be as absolutely true to the facts as they possibly can be. Um, but, you know, I do think almost all history is to some degree fiction in the sense that it's a story that we tell about the past and it's more or less uh, affected by biases and interpretation and things. And, I, you know, as long as we say, this is a fiction, but there's a, a, an honesty and an integrity in, in the factual underpinning of the story, you know. I would hope, my hope would be, and I, and I have a huge website which I built because I really wanted the readers to, if they're interested in, to go and read my what my assumptions were 
what the facts were that I based it on, you know, why I said that, for example, Peter Schiffer had a relationship to Johann Fuss that predated the, the making of the Bible. He was probably his foster son or in some filial relationship. You know, there, there are factual reasons why you can make that interpretation. So, yeah, I just, I, I found it to be a, a really exciting story, as, as I said, and I wanted to tell, I, I, I think that I was really interested in it just from a purely printing standpoint in the beginning, and I just, it was more like a treasure hunt. I wanted to unravel how it might have occurred. And then only as I wrote it did I realize how strikingly parallel it was to where we are today. And I began to understand Peter Schiffer who, you know, is the protagonist who's telling the story not only as just a new pair of eyes, but a really specific and interesting character because he had been a scribe before he entered the workshop of Gutenberg and became a printer and very reluctantly gets involved in this new technological, machine-like kind of horrible thing to him in the beginning. And I found he was a wonderful vehicle for me as a writer to explore my ambivalence about a new technology, namely digital technology. And the more that I looked into the period of the mid, it's the, you know, the late medieval period, the early modern period, it's such a crux period in history, incredibly similar to the period that we're living in now. I found him a wonderful, you know, character to both honor the new thing and be afraid of it, you know. And I still think, I, I, I totally, you know, Peter, c'est moi. You know, Slaubert said, you know, Madame Bovary, c'est moi. I, I, I felt very akin to him. He was a great character for me to look at the story through. Um, yes, and I want to talk about him. Before I do, I just want to okay. mention um, that this is the Gutenberg's web, uh, Apprentice website that you're talking about, right? Right, right. Um, www.gutenbergsapprentice.com. Yes, uh, and I do want to emphasize to our listeners that it really is worth checking out. Um, I was I was studying it as I was preparing the questions, and there's been a lot of use, useful information there. Um, I'll give the address again at the end, okay. um, but I did want to make sure to underline that because it's a really useful resource about not just the book, but also um, the history of printing and uh, the history of Mainz, um, which yep. is where the book takes place, and a bunch of other things. So so let's talk now a little bit more about Peter. I mean, you mentioned that he was a scribe and that he was not interested. Uh, tell us your interpretation of his relationship with Johann Fust, and also uh, when we first meet Peter, he has just returned from Paris. So uh, fill us in on the early stages of his Sure. Well, he, he was, in fact, documented to have been a scribe at the Sorbonne, and there is a, uh, on the website, you can see an image of a colophon of a manuscript of Aristotle that he wrote out by hand. He was an extraordinarily talented calligrapher. And we don't, it, the interesting thing about the production of the first major printed book is that it took place in this five years for which there's no documented history. So we know about Peter before, and afterward, he, he and Fuss, with whom he had a relationship, which I'll explain, they, two years after the Bible appeared, they produced this extraordinary three-color psalm book called the Mind Psalter, which is considered the most beautiful book ever printed. And so Peter himself became celebrated as a major printer, as a type cutter, a type designer. And he really was, he found, co-founded the Frankfurt Book Fair. He was this extraordinarily important figure in early printing. So... 
as I said, I had no idea that he existed. And, and, and so the whole question in my mind and the question in all the scholars always has been, who did what? What was the exact relationship between these people who we know were involved in this production of this first printed book? And we only know that because it ended badly and there was a lawsuit. So Johann Fust was the venture capitalist who gave Johann Gutenberg the money to do the Bible. And he probably, they probably had a different project in mind before that. Um, but nonetheless, it's documented as the lawsuit, and we know exactly how much money he gave and so forth. And what people don't know, though, is what exactly was the relationship between this young man, Peter Schiffer, and Johann Fust. Many years later, probably after Fust's death, Peter married his daughter, Christina, which was very common in the time in, in the guild system that the master, the apprentice married the master's daughter, or, or you kept the, in the business together by, by marrying people died very young and women died in childbirth. So what the sources have told us though and and the fact that I've chosen to open my book with a frame narrative in which Peter is telling the story of this extraordinary thing that happened to him in his youth. And he's a man of 60 and he's telling it to a Benedictine abbot in 1485 35 years later. It actually happened that way. He actually did tell this to Trisamius and we have the Latin accounts in two books that Trisamius wrote. Um, So so I just found it to be a tremendous opportunity to look back from a 35-year vantage. But in this, in these particular conversations, um, he is referred to by Trisamius as Fust's adoptive son uh, on one occasion, and then another, in another occasion, in another document. So it seems clear that he was an orphan, and he came somehow into Fust's family life at some undefined point. And scholars in Germany think that, one in particular thinks that, well, of course, he was a farmer's son from a little town named Gernsheim, and how, how did he get educated? How did he learn Latin? How did he go to school in Mainz? How did he go to university in Erfurt? How did he wind up in, at the Sorbonne? You know, it was a very upper-middle-class lifestyle. So he, my assumption and the story that I chose to tell was that Peter had this filial relationship to Fuss because Fuss had a first marriage that ended without children, and... Um, it seemed to me uh, proper, proper, probable that, that he thought of him as his son and asked him to come back from Paris, where he had, been, had doing this wonderful career climbing through the scribal ranks, um, to come back to oversee or to be involved in this workshop that he has given 800 guilders to, which at the time, you know, we're talking $10 million in the currency of the day, a vast amount of money. So he, you know, Peter was really his trusted man in the workshop. That's how I saw the whole thing. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, Peter, he, 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 just to talk a little bit about Gutenberg and his relation to Gutenberg, too, I felt that these two both were the kind of humans, the kind of men or women who stood half in one world and half in another, both outside of their time in, to some degree, because they, Johann Gutenberg had been a member of the patrician um, elite in Mainz. But he was not allowed to participate in the, the highest club because his mother had a, was a commoner. She had common blood. So he actually left the city of Mainz in his 20s. And he was a bit of a, I want to say black sheep, but, you know, he, he couldn't find his place in his own society. So he was an outsider. And he went off to Strasbourg and tinkered for 20 years and did all kinds of interesting inventions before the Bible. And Peter, too, was this character who was dragged unwillingly at first from the old way of making books, this very beautiful spiritual way of making books, into this new, frightening, 
you know, almost brutalist kind of metallurgical process, which initially he doesn't like, but he comes to embrace. So I thought that they, too, would connect on this other level of, of trying to make something new and, and, and kind of dimly understanding that it was going to be important but not really knowing why. Because one of the biggest mistakes we make, the biggest anachronisms, is to imagine that they knew how important it was going to be. Because I don't think, I think they sensed that it was going to be completely different, but they couldn't know that printing would totally transform the world. And they're very different personalities. I mean, Peter is very much an artist, as you portray him, and Gutenberg is kind of um, a 15th century Steve Jobs in a way. He's, he comes across as being mercurial and brilliant and really hard to get along with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did read the Jobs biography. My husband is a technology reporter, and we've had this discussion, the Luddite versus technology discussion in my home for the last 20 years. You know, we were in Silicon Valley for a number of years because that's where I'm from. And I, I do, I've met a lot of master printers, and I've met a lot of tech visionaries, and there's a, they do have a commonality. And I actually I had Peter meditate upon this at one point in the story with Tresemius, sort of asking whether whether it's, there's a kind of necessary quality of, of blinkeredness or almost you know tunnel vision and focus that these genius characters have to be like. And it's not only technology people. I mean, artists, you think about Picasso. You think about a lot of great creators have had shall we say, we're a little bit on the spectrum, perhaps, you know? Um, and I think it's an interesting question. That was my, my the, the vision I had of Gutenberg was, I think, probably somewhat shocking to the Germans because he's been really deified in Germany. But he was an absolute uh, take-no-prisoners kind of guy. And we know this because of the lawsuits. He left a trail of lawsuits in his wake. And he was, the thing that I think is so interesting about him is that he was not an artist. I think over history, we've piled all the attributes to make this book onto this one person, when in fact it was a consortium. And he himself was an engineer and a, and a serial entrepreneur. As I said, he had a business in Strasbourg before trying to invent printing that it involved making these crazy things called Pilgrim Mirrors, which were basically the first mass-produced produced metal object, and they were meant for pilgrims to the sites of of holy relics, they held them up to catch the holy rays from from bits of saints' bones and things like this. And and so he had a, pro, a, a business doing that. It ended badly in a lawsuit. It's documented. He had another lawsuit. He was sued for breach of marriage contract by a woman who claimed he had said he would marry her, and then he didn't. And um, he won the lawsuit, but he was fined for the vulgarity of his mouth. Uh, so, you know, I felt that he was an incredibly driven person. And I think this is really true of visionaries and, and innovators, that he had to have an incredible persistence and kind of incredible tough skin. It took him so many years, and it was so difficult to get the money to make the technology work. You know, it was the kind of character who can pull that off has to be a fairly tough-nosed person, I think, you know. Yes, and even really to think in those terms. I mean, sure, he didn't probably imagine that he was going to overturn the entire book culture of his time, but to be the person who doesn't think, well, you know, I'll just be a better scribe or something like that, to think, no, there's another way, a different way of doing this and that nobody has imagined. I think you have to have a certain kind of 
uh, arrogance, really, in order to set yourself up against the world that way. Self-belief, you know, self-belief, a real dodgedness. And it's funny because some critics have said, you know, that I painted him as egotistical. I don't see it that way. I see it much more as a a drivenness, you know, and it, it it is artistic in the sense that it's, having a vision in the mind that needs that one is trying to realize and i think that's the this the 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 area in which i felt he and peter really would understand each other and and i think also the tragedy for peter because this was if you think about youth and you think about the potential to do something that which nobody had ever done before. It had to have been the most transformative, exciting period of this young man's life, working with this team in this place, doing this amazing thing that no one had ever done before. You know, and they it, they lived in such a pre-industrial uh, period that it had to have felt like magic or divinity in some way. So I feel as though they had a relationship based on this mutual understanding of mastery and creation. And and that's why it hurt so much when it, it fell apart. For in my imagining of how how the whole story unfolded, um, but yeah, I, I just I, I found um, you know Gutenberg to be the character that we all kind of project our our visions on. But actually, being able to tell the story from outside and say, well, you know, he was a tough character. He's he's like a lot of bosses that we know, you know, and and we need people like that, you know. We need the Steve Jobses of the world and the and the Zuckerbergs and you know the people who create these things, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be nice guys. And he's very tough on his men. I mean, he keeps them almost like mm. as if they are in a, a monastery for large parts of the book. <laughs> I mean, it's a kind of strange monastery because they get free booze and yeah, so yeah, yeah, to yeah. keep them happy. Yeah. But yeah. it's like club fed, you know. Um, yeah, I felt well. The thing that I found really interesting, and this is where it comes into that question of imagining the story versus what's documented. You know, nobody knows. We know what building it was in. Um, we kind of know what the presses looked like because we have images from fifty years later, but, you know, in trying to actually imagine that space and that place, you know, I had to imagine it. And and only based on how the world worked then from a lot of research and how the Catholic Church might have operated at that opportunity, I mean, at that time, you know, you think, well, how could they have done it? It's really a process of deduction, at least for me in writing about real stories, is just working backward and saying, okay, if it had been known that they were doing this, there's no doubt in my mind that the church would have intervened. So how could they have done it? You know, oh, well, it must have been in secret. It can't have been, can't have been well known. Um, and yeah, I mean, the guild system was a really interesting system anyway, and so they did work in these very tight-knit groups. But um, I did feel that the secrecy aspect of it had to, have been, had to have played a really important part because Mainz was a very small town, and they were in basically open warfare with the archbishop. You know, it was a a really politically tense period, and, and and you know the thing that I found really interesting is that the two men in charge of the Bible project came from different social classes, and how could what would that have meant? I mean, I think they were all new men in the sense that they all wanted things to change, and the pressure was growing for things to change. You know, we haven't talked about the impact of printing and why printing appeared in Mainz in this period, but there was this incredible hunger. For learning, and Peter had already experienced it as a scribe at the Sorbonne, that there was a large and growing class of educated middle-class people who were in the merchant class who wanted access to riches and power and goods, you know? And the feudal system had, until that point, and the church, and the millions of little aristocrats and dukes and 
Scouts uh, who ran the thing uh, kept them effectively kept books and education out of the hands of the populace. Um, so the time was really ripe for for change, and it was consequently a time of great upheaval and tension. Um, and again, you know, I, all of these things were in my mind when I was I was writing in the aftermath uh, and doing my first research in the aftermath of 9/11 and the civilizational changes that are going on now with with the spread of the internet and the uprisings in the Middle East. You know, and there's so much ferment socially, which has been enabled by technology that I, I just felt all along that there we could learn a lot from looking at the past and, and seeing what happened in that situation and, and comparing it to our own. I definitely want to stay with that um, or come back to it rather because for okay. the moment I'd like to stay with, um, with the book itself as it's set okay. up. I mean that secrecy I think contributes to the intensity of the emotion, the conflict among, especially among the three major characters but there are minor characters as well who are also mm-hmm. shut up in this workshop and perhaps that contributes to the, the tragedy as well because you know you put your whole self into a project that ends up lasting, what, five, six years? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a great, you know, Peter and, and Johan, uh, Johan is, is, um, is spending a great deal of money Um but Peter is also putting a great deal of himself into this project, and to have it then um, not work out—I mean, you would imagine that that would that would heighten the tension among these people. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know everybody gets involved in collective efforts for their own reasons, and and I in choosing in characterizing characters and what motivates them and what drives them, you know, I felt very strongly that. They were all very religious because it was a religious world. Everything was governed by God. The world was determined by God. But, you know, within that, there are different shades. And I think that Gutenberg, as I said, was a serial entrepreneur. He was really interested in making the thing work and in also getting a little bit of credit for his genius and his brilliance, you know. And after after the Bible, he went on and he developed yet another technology. Um, one scholar thinks that he developed kind of a prototype of linotype. So he was, he was a constantly inventive mind. Um, and I don't think that he spent much time reflecting on the meaning of it. Peter, on the other hand, you know, he was the right-hand man. The scholars believe that he was the number one compositor, the, the main typesetter, the first typesetter, and that he also designed, if not the type, um, most of the pages of the Bible. No one knows, but he had the skills. He had all of the ability. He knew how to make books. And Gutenberg didn't have a background in bookmaking at all. Actually, Fust, you know, Fust was a merchant. He had a, he sold manuscript books along with other goods. So there was a real division of labor. And I, I for me, the most rewarding part, in a way, was to imagine what it was like to be a young man who's a scribe, who... The work of the scribe in the Middle Ages was a holy calling, you know, and even if they were working in the university in a secular area, they had still been trained by monks in monasteries, and they took the Word of God in through their eyes and brought it out through their pen. Um, they went, you know, as one Michelle Brown, who's a wonderful uh, expert on manuscripts, says they, they moved through the desert of the world with their pen, you know, and I just, I, I felt that he, when doing the holy book, you know, for him, it would have to be a spiritual journey and have to be a, he would have to understand what he was doing in spiritual terms. 
Um, and, you know, the merchant has another point of view. The merchant is the one who has, has as you said, he's got all of this money riding on it. It was a huge sum of money riding on the whole thing, and it had to work. He had to sell it. And I think what's interesting to me, and I was thinking about it in terms of today, too, as writers, you know, is you need to be an artist. But you also need to sell the book, you know, and you also need to design the book. And all of these aspects of create, creation that have to come together. And in the case of the production of the Gutenberg Bible, it was different. People had different, different capabilities and responsibilities in the making of this book. And there were 20 other people there doing it because it was an enormous undertaking. Um, but, you know, even in daily life, we all... As writers and artists, you know, we have our artistic selves, and then we have the part that has to get the book out to the public and talk to people about it on the, on the radio. You know, it's, it's, um, it's just this whole question of, of how we have collaboration, how we work with others in a team, I think. Yes, um, and Peter is, I mean, if we're going to stay with, uh, with the Gutenberg of Steve Jobs uh, analogy, and I don't want to push it too far, but, you know, Peter's kind of the Johnny Ive of the... Uh, of the group, he's he's the one who comes up with the, who redesigns the type to make it beautiful, and I think there's a passage that you were going to read where he he first sees the results of of his new yeah, type, I his will. new page. This would be the perfect place to. Well, actually, this is oh, I could read that one. I was going to read something from the. Um, um, I'll have to find that. I was going to read from the first moment he actually sees it when he's rather horrified. He doesn't. He's never experienced anything. I think I'll read that one. Because oh, okay. No, that's fine. I, yeah. I just misunderstood. So that that will be fine. That will actually lead us into something else. So go ahead. Because I, yeah, I think it's um it's a bit like the magic that we feel today when we're confronted with technology that we don't understand. And so what has happened is the book opens and Peter's in Paris and his father calls him home to work in the workshop and he doesn't know what it's about. And he's been waiting impatiently after dinner for him to tell him why he's brought him all the way back home. And Fuss and he are sitting outside, and Fuss puts this little parchment, this little group of five sheets, folded sheets, into Peter's hand and says, um, look, just look, and then I think you'll understand. And it goes on, the choir, five folded nested sheets, was of parchment of middling quality, part of a school book, judging by its short square shape. Peter recognized at once the Latin grammar of Donatus, he had written out those declinations a thousand times, a common, tawdry work. He looked up, horrified. Feel, his father said, and flipped the booklet to its last blank page. He lifted Peter's finger, rubbed it lightly on the empty space. He felt a stippling, a kind of roughness on the hide, as if the parchment maker had not scraped the skin entirely smooth. He rubbed two fingers, three, and all at once they sensed a strange, sharp symmetry. He flipped the page back to its written side. His blood jumped then, his palms grew damp. The texture of lettering was squat and ugly, yet every string of letters was unnervingly even all across the line. Each of those lines ended with an utter chilling harmony at precisely the same distance from the edge. What hand could write a line that straight and end exactly underneath the one above? What human hand could possibly achieve a thing so strange? He felt his heart squeeze and his soul flood with an overwhelming dread. You see now why I had to call you back. Fuss's voice was high. What work is this? What hand did this? No hand. His father took his fingertip again. Feel how it sinks, the way the ink lies not on top but in a hollow in the skin? Peter closed his eyes to sense it more precisely. It was as Fuss had said. The parchment yielded in some way. It was not smooth beneath the ink as when he wrote it with his pen. 
Whose work is this, he said again. Fust's heavy face was shining. This man they call Gutenberg has found a way to make the letters out of metal. He lays the ink upon each one, then stamps them in the page. Peter raised it to his eyes, so close that he could see the faint depression, a slope so slight as to be almost imperceptible from the surface to the gully of each stroke, the space in which the angels, or the devil surely, danced upon a pin. He could not speak at first, the shock was so extreme. Yes, um, I'm really glad that you read that. I, as I said, I thought that, because it, it actually leads us into something else, which is, um, first off, the technology that he's describing, the, this, the justification of lines, which is something mm-hmm. that we take absolutely for granted and that mm-hmm. to him has a, an almost demonic meaning. Um, and that shows up, you know, through the book, uh, people react to this, this mechanical precision of the lines. Um, yeah. But then there's also hints there of the actual technology of the printing. And I wonder, I, we didn't talk about this in advance, but I'm wondering if you could just fill people in a little bit about how those early printed letters were produced. And then, because you are yourself a letterpress printer, if you can talk about how your hands-on experience of printing feeds into the way that you are able to connect to the characters in your book. Sure. Well, it's, it's, I think one of the reasons that I wanted to write the book was to explore the question of how did they do it. And this is a, coming back to that piece of research that I had read that was published. It was two researchers at Princeton, one of whom is the world's leading authority on the Gutenberg Bible, and the other who is a brilliant physicist who now runs machine intelligence at Google. You know, and these guys had this amazing theory that actually uh, the first letters that Gutenberg cast probably in the Latin grammar book that I mentioned in this particular passage. This was actually the first printed book. It was a tiny little grammar book. The first major book was the Bible. But no one actually knows because there is no surviving type. You know, and all that people can do and have been doing, like reading tea leaves, is to analyze the books themselves. And over the decades and centuries of Gutenberg research, there have been many, many, many theories advanced about how they did it. And no one knows for a fact. I found it plausible, the, the theory that was advanced by the Princeton uh, researchers, which is what I advanced, because I don't believe that a technology emerges full-formed like Athena from the head of Zeus. And I think that there had to have been a process of experimentation and rudimentary design and, and gradual improvement. Um, so, you know, that's where my experience as a printer came in. I mean, anyone who's done any printing, and there are many, many people out there, most of the people in their 70s and 80s who I've talked to at my readings all took print shop in high school, you know, and a lot of people know about the technology, and it hasn't changed in it had not changed from about 1450 to 1950. For 500 years, it was fundamentally the same, which is, you know, you have a mold, which is in, uh, it's demonstrated now in the Gutenberg Museum, made out of copper, into which you've stamped the reverse image of a letter. And in that mold, you then place it in an instrument that will hold it tight, and you pour in molten metal, and you create a letter, which is still reversed, because when you print it, it will print right side up. So it's a very, it's a four-step process to make a letter. And so for me, it was really more, it was fun. It was because I understood the technology. I spent way too much time buried in the minutia of how, of all the various researchers over the centuries in German and French who have written about how, how do they do it? And I I just wanted to find a, 
a plausible timeline for how they might have done it. And one of the things that to me is so significant um, in the historical record is this discussion that Peter had with Tresamius 30 years later, in which Tresamius says, okay, here's the most important invention we now know. Please tell us how it came about. And sadly for historians, or for anyone, you know, he only wrote down a very summary description of what Peter Schiffer told him. But Peter Schiffer told him, look, we had been struggling. It was really difficult. We couldn't get it to work. And we printed three choirs, which is three signatures, and we had spent a huge amount of money, and we, and we were stuck until I thought of a faster way to, to cast the letters. So he said this. And there are some historians who doubt the truth of this account. I don't personally doubt the truth of this account. I think that Peter Schiffer did something. We just don't know what he did. So my whole task was to invent or imagine a timeline of the technological development that would allow him to do something at a significant point in the novel and, and in the story that, that allowed it, them to really mass-produce these letters quickly. Because initially, the early research people think that they probably didn't use a metal mold. They used uh, sand or clay or some temporary thing that um, you had to remake the mold every time. Um, so, you know, for me it was, I always say it was a bit like a, um, a treasure hunt. You know, it was the, the nerd's delight in really getting into the minutiae of how they did it. And, you know, some people like that level of, of, of detail and some people find it too much. A, a lot of readers have told me how much they really enjoy uh, really being in the nitty-gritty of the workshop and, and, and seeing how hard it was because, you know, we can't imagine a pre-industrial age. I think that's the thing that's the most challenging is to put yourself into a world in which it felt like magic had to feel like magic because it you know the definition of, of revelation is something from nothing you know it's ex nihilo out of out of nothing is this new thing and they were deeply religious people they could only understand it as a gift from god or conversely a manifestation of the devil you know it was beyond their ken and and i just thought wow this is how i feel about the ipad you know um not things that people can grasp if they can't do it themselves. I'm one of the people who love the detail. Um, I was talking with Laura Morelli last month, and she wrote a book called The Gondola Maker, and it's, there's an enormous amount of detail that I would never even have imagined could, you could ask about the making of gondolas. But just as with your book, it's all very focused on the physical and mental experience of the main character, and so the detail is just... It just helps you recreate his world. At least that's that's how I see it. It's uh-huh. it's when it just you know when when it comes detached from a particular character's experience, it can start to feel like an information dump. But I never had that experience with Gutenberg's Apprentice. I really loved learning about what went into printing, learning how you know experiencing it through Peter's eyes um, mm. and all of that. I think it really worked. Well, I'm glad, and I really felt I had read a really fantastic book, which I can't recommend highly enough, called The Craftsman by uh, the philosopher Richard Sennett, and it really talked about, I'm really interested, especially now in the world in which we live, in the physical, and in the, at the act of making, and I thought, you know, and as an artist, as a writer, as a maker, you know, I had apprenticeships, I, and we, I can talk now a bit about my background in letterpress, you know, I apprenticed myself to two master printers, and it's a physical process of learning and the act of apprenticeship as you know yourself writing novels it's a painful long difficult process of of failure and getting up again and failure and getting up again and this is what all true 
creation is, you know, and I think it's, um, in, in this world, it was very, very rooted in the physical. And I still think that we are very physical beings and that most of us derive incredible enjoyment uh, from working with our hands and making things. And that's part of why I wanted to celebrate this, you know, is that we're, we're animals, we're human creatures, you know, we like stuff, we like leather, we like paper. And, you know, um, I think the whole, the whole process of technical challenge is, is akin in any field, really, you know, you have to push yourself beyond what you think you can do. And it's, it's terrifying. But, you know, I loved the, the I, had, I had such a good time writing uh, the relationship between Hans, the goldsmith, the master goldsmith, and Peter as he's teaching him. And he, he's a grumpy old character, you know, he's, he, but I put a lot of my grandfather's love for craft into, into that character, because my grandfather was, you know, a very humble person. And I think humility, is such a key part of it, you know, is to recognize that you're going to have to do it over and over and over again until you get it right. And, you know, it's it's a tremendous feeling of achievement. And and that's what Senate talks about in his book. He says, you know, the, 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 the challenge of the apprentice uh, craftsperson is to learn to live in the space of uncertainty where you're not right there, to be a willing to dwell in the, in the period of non-closure. And I felt like, you know, that's, how anybody achieves anything is that you have to be willing to sit in that discomfort and you know it was uncomfortable in that workshop but you know I think they were animated at least Peter for sure by a credible sense after a period at a certain point that they were doing God's work and that, that this was planned and this was willed and they had to carry it through so that gave him in my reading of his character he was a very devout man he was a profoundly religious man all the books that he published and printed afterward were canon law and church law and and uh, theological works so you know i had a pretty i felt like pretty i understood him quite well and you know it must have been tremendous experience to put the words of the holy book into print you know and i had a really great time i have to scan in and put up on my website my um I have this chart that is actually a chart that's printed in the literature of when each signature was produced at what time. They figured it out by comparing the ink and now analyzing the inks, and they can see exactly what batch of ink printed which page. It's amazing what they can do. So they know exactly how, the scholars, how the book was produced. And I laid over that which Bible books they were producing at which moment. Because I wanted him, and that's how I structured the book. You know, I wanted him to be able to be thinking about uh, the book of Mark or the, you know, whatever, the gospel according to John at a given moment in time, because I think that that's how they thought. Uh, and what to quote Hilary Mantel, you know, she actually once said um, in a conversation with Ian Mortimer, I think, she said, you know, that she thought every historical novel should have a Catholic childhood, um, which I thought was hilarious because I also had a Catholic childhood. And I don't think she meant Catholic per se is that religion, but this mysticism and this ability to kind of imagine the unseen. But I could not have written this book if I hadn't known the whole Catholic background, because it's fundamental to the, to the world, you know? Uh, yes, I do with Orthodox, mostly. So. But they have the same appreciation, um, yeah. even though I myself am not Orthodox. But uh, right. let's move a little bit now into the modern connections. And let's start by talking about the book itself. One of the great things about uh, this gig that I have as an interviewer is that people send me print books, and often they send me hardcover books. Yep. Um, and the the one thing, I mean, I read on my iPad all the time, uh, especially mm-hmm. novels, but I love 
the feel and the look of print books and the design of your book is particularly beautiful. It has these lovely um, uh, initials, you know, of, the, of a 15th century type and, and lines down the first page and this kind of thing. And even the paper is this kind of rough edged paper that you can imagine being medieval paper. Uh, did you have any say in that, given the, your background in printing? Well, I have to say I was really touched, honored, and amazed, you know, by the designers at Harper because they, from the minute they got the manuscript, both the cover designer and the interior designer, who are two different people, they were so excited to do this project because, you know, as you, as you said, we're all book lovers. That's why we're in the business, you know, and, and people who work in publishing love books, too. So to get to, to design a book about the first printed book, you know, they honestly brought to it the best that they had, and they were really amazingly excited. And I was totally honored and touch because they did run it all by me you know they said and I had some long discussions with Leah who's the, the cover of the, um, the book designer the gut designers you know about the letting and about a certain type of M dash that she was using and you know we went back and forth a few times and, and yeah I think that they really you know they respected the integrity of the whole package and they also understood that anyone who's interested in this period and in just the history of the book you know, the book itself has to be worth the content, which is the story of the world's first book and the greatest, most valuable, most rare book in the world. You know, so they made this incredibly beautiful package. I'm, I'm still stunned, you know. I think it's, it's very interesting to me, and I think you may have noticed this too in, in receiving books recently. I went to a booksellers convention last fall, and many of them said that they have noticed since the advent of the Kindle and since the growing penetration of the ebook that those books which are produced in hardback have gotten more and more beautiful. And I don't know if you've noticed that as well, but you know, I we, we talked a lot about why that might be and I think it's it's a tremendous kind of nod to the fact that print books have a place and in order for a publisher to invest the time and the money into the print edition, um, it has to be worth it. There has to be a reason, and, and there has to be a reason for the reader to read it in print. And so you can't just sort of churn out any old indifferent piece of work. You know, it is either you're going to have a beautiful print hardback, or you'll read it in some less elegant format. You know, you read it either in a very quick paperback, or you read it in uh, on your on your iPad or your Kindle. So what do you see the future of the book? I mean, you've, you yourself, even during this interview, you've made a connection between what's happening now and what was happening then. What, what do you think uh, it was going to happen? Will print books stick around? Um, no, I think that, that I'm actually going to go give a talk at a conference next week about this, and I, I, I've, I've thought about it a great, great deal. I think there are really two important things to bear in mind, and the first is that the ebook is to the book what the Gutenberg Bible was to the manuscript. That is to say, it was the first iteration of the new technology, and it fundamentally imitated the technology that preceded it, right? So e-books are designed to, to look just like a regular book, only they're, they're in electronic form. And the, and the Gutenberg Bible looked just like a manuscript. And, and they were afraid that no one would buy it if it looked too different. So what happened was in the first 30 years of print, all the books that were produced were essentially printed manuscripts. And it took really a huge, huge, long, elaborate process of business reorganization, crashing and burning of companies and everything before a new format uh, emerged. And that didn't happen for 50 years. 
So what I always say is that we are now at the same place that, that Peter was in 1485 when he's talking to Trithamius, where, uh, you know, he people were horrified at that time, as I think a lot of people now are kind of horrified at this glut of fairly poorly produced material flooding the market and sort of wor- worrying about the, the fate of the book and the future of the book. But actually, it's sort of the first, it's like, book 1.0, you know, and what's going to happen next will be, has to be something fundamentally different. And what happened in the print era is that in 1500 in Venice, uh, a printer named Aldous Manutius invented the pocketbook, and that was a radically new reading object. You know, it had nothing to do with the huge manuscript lectern tomes that had come before. And I think that's where we are now. You know, I go to lots of conferences and seminars because I write about this topic, too, for, for The Economist. Is looking at what, is the, what will be the killer app? What is the new, the new reading experience that we're going to have? You know, is it going to be interactive and distributed over the web? Is it going to be more like, uh, you know, going back to the old days of copyists where we have individual books? It's going to, it has to be radically different. And we're not there yet, you know, mm-hmm. but... The other thing that is really important to remember, and historians of the book constantly say it, is that two technologies can and have always coexisted over time. So I think we're seeing it now. It's very clear that ebook take-up is leveling off. Print book sales are really still strong. Bookstores are popping up right and left. You know, so the ebook has not killed the print book, and they're going to coexist for a great number of years because it's a 500-year-old part of our civilization is so deeply anchored in us, you know, and it will take, uh, there will be an evolution, of course, but I don't think, you know, I have never liked this technology uh, kind of ideology that, you know, one technology annihilates the preceding one. It's just not true, you know, and they will continue. We'll have both of, all of us read both, you know, so I have, I have lots of hope for the the future of the print book. (laughs) That's great. So on uh, that note, what are you working on now? Do you have plans for other novels? I do, I do. In fact, I'm. Um, I, it's funny, you know. I had never really imagined that I would write historical novels per se. Um, and as I said earlier, most of my writing uh, when I was in graduate school and after were contemporary stories and things. But I've become really fascinated by other eras and other worlds. And so I'm working on a completely different era and a completely different continent. But the one con- commonality I would say is that it's it's a subject really close to my heart. It's it's the story of uh, my Scottish forebears who emigrated from Scotland to North America in the 19th century. And um, so, you know, I think in order to spend as much time as I'm sure you would agree with this, you know, you know when you go into these worlds and do this research and live in that place for all that time, I think you have to be fundamentally obsessed um, or at least, you know, really, really interested in the material. And, and so since it's my family story, I'm really excited to learn more about it. Um, so that's what I'm, I'm working on next. Well, now you definitely have to come back and talk to me because I have Scottish forebears, too. I'm actually a first-generation immigrant. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) You have my email address. Let me know when the book is ready. (laughs) I will. I will. I look forward to it. It's been really, really fun talking to you. And it's been great talking to you, too. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Alex Christie, the author of Gutenberg's Apprentice. You can find out more about her and her book and early printing at www.gutenbergsapprentice.com. That is G-U-T-E-N-B-E 
R-G-S-A-P-P-R-E-N-T-I-C-E as one word. Like us on Facebook, search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. At blog.cplesley.com, I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. If you'd like to know more about my novels, you can find that information under the Books tab. The New Books Network is run by volunteers, but we do have expenses. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider visiting our website at http colon slash slash newbooksnetwork.com, that's one word, newbooksnetwork, and making a donation. That's all for today. Please check back soon for another conversation about new books in historical fiction.